Okay, we're going to begin something a little different, but it's really the next natural step, I think, from what we've been doing. We've been reading The Desire of Ages, chapter 79, and it's a chapter called It Is Finished, and we've been reading a commentary on it that hopefully explains it, and from now we're going to look at the problem that we have is that this chapter is singular in presenting the material that we've looked at. Much of what Ellen White says is said in a seemingly forensic style. And so what we're going to do from here is examine some of her statements that sound very forensic. By forensic I mean legal. And then we will look at some principles of biblical interpretation that she outlines because I think that that's the best way to help us decide do we choose between statements do we say well we'll take the legal ones because she does say them or do we stay with chapter 79 which is the, it's one of the few times where she really thoroughly explains the atonement and how if we want to harmonize them how do we do that how do we harmonize her statements? And which statements take priority in that harmonization? So some, these are some of the questions we'll be looking at today. And the handout that I gave you uh, on principles of biblical interpretation are her own statements of that that I, I hope to use. And then looking forward a few weeks into spring quarter, I hope to begin working on the Bible because the Bible has a variety of ways of saying things too and, and you can take almost any text and make something out of it <laughs> in other words you can almost prove anything by the Bible and so what we need to do is develop a hermeneutic or principles of interpretation that will allow us to do that so what I'd like to do is begin with some of her forensic statements so you get the idea of why we need to do this. His, Christ's object was to re reconcile the prerogatives of justice and mercy and let each stand separate in its dignity yet united. His mercy was not weakness but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin. Yet a power to draw to it the love of humanity. Through Christ, justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of its exalted holiness. That's a pretty strong statement. And it sounds very forensic. God bowed his head satisfied. Now justice and mercy could blend. Now he could be just and yet the justifier of all who should believe on Christ. He, that is God, looked upon the victim expiring on the cross and said, It is finished. The human race shall have another trial. The redemption price was paid and Satan fell like lightning from heaven. Uh, now sometimes the way I've heard people get around some of these statements is to say, well, when did she write them? Was it in her early ministry when she did tend to sound more forensic or was it in her later ministry? But, but this doesn't help us with these statements. The first one was written in the General Conference Bulletin, fourth quarter, 1899, which is when she was writing Desire of Ages, and the chapter is finished. 
The uh, second statement is from the youth instructor, June 21, 1900. Same time period. Yeah. So that, that doesn't help us here. And I think it's important that we, we develop a, a, met a sound methodology for attempt, our attempt to harmonize these different statements and what they mean. So what I'd like us to do is to begin by reading this document. And then we'll be, I want you to keep it and bring it back. And I would like you to bring back the document we were using. So that's why I gave you notebooks, so you can kind of keep everything together. And what we'll be doing is referring back and forth to various documents. So I'm going to begin by reading the first statement on this principles of interpretation. This is from letter 121-1901. The Lord speaks to human beings in imperfect speech in order that the degenerate senses, the dull earthly perception of earthly beings, may comprehend his words. Thus is shown God's condescension. He meets fallen human beings where they are. The Bible, perfect as it is in its simplicity, does not answer to the great ideas of God. For f infinite ideas cannot be perfectly embodied in finite vehicles of thought. Instead of the expressions of the Bible being exaggerated, as many people suppose, the strong expressions break down before the magnificence of the thought, though the penman selected the most expressive language through which to convey the truths of higher education. Sinful human beings can only bear to look upon a shadow of the brightness of heaven's glory. Mm. Any thoughts or comments or questions on that? This, by the way, for some reason, I accidentally erased uh, where this is found. This is found, I believe, in Selected Messages, Book 1, somewhere around 21. I believe page 21, somewhere like that. So then what are the implications for our interpretations of the Bible then? If what the Bible has is merely the shadow of what actually is. Don't you think it means we have to look behind the words and, and try to grasp the, the meaning intended, the, the brighter brightness behind it? Hmm. Okay. She starts by saying in this paragraph, that he speaks in perfect in imperfect speech, so the degenerate senses, the dull earthly perception of earthly beings, may comprehend his words. That would explain why God has spoken often in legal language to people, because that's their earthly perception of reality. Consequently, I think how I see it is that throughout the ages, God has been processing truth. Uh, all along through various avenues including science trying, trying to bring us up to higher and higher levels of appreciation and understanding so that we need to be careful not to straitjacket our understanding of God in language in other words making language what the language what the words say the last word of interpretation. That's, that's called a literalist interpretation, where you just simply, it, it says justice, therefore it must mean 
this kind of justice, therefore it must mean this. Straightjacking or straightjacketing uh, the atonement in metaphors that are human, basically of human origin, which is what I tried to point out in the document, is that the whole legal model was actually a human invention and on the plains of Babylon. And therefore, we, we need to be careful not to limit the atonement to our perception. In other words, we can, I think what she does is set us free here to be able to have some room to move beyond mere language. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to the understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. We are to comprehend the deep things of God. Angels desire to look into the truths that are revealed to the people who with contrite hearts are searching for the word of God and praying for greater lengths and breadths and depths and heights of the knowledge which he can alone give. Okay, any questions, observations, comments? What, what she's saying here is that there's more than we get from the surface of reading. And there's a height, there's a depth, there's a breadth, and uh, it takes perseverance and willingness to probe and ask questions and get beneath uh, that surface. And the next statement, I think, clearly says that. Faithful teachers should be placed in charge of the Bible classes. Teachers who will strive to make the students understand their lessons, not by explaining everything to them, but by requiring them to explain clearly every passage they read. Let these teachers remember that little good will be accomplished by skimming over the surface of the word. Thoughtful investigation and earnest taxing study are required in order for this word to be understood. There are truths in the word which, like veins of precious ore, are hidden beneath the surface. The hidden treasure is discovered as it is searched for, as a miner searches for gold and silver. The evidence of the truth of God's word is in the word itself. Scripture is the key that unlocks Scripture. The deep meaning of the truths of God's word is unfolded to our minds by His Spirit. Okay, any questions or comments? It's pretty self-explanatory, I think. Uh, not, not to spoon-feed, not to uh, just explain everything for you. You explain it? Okay. If people come up with different conclusions, though, are all those conclusions necessarily right if it's shown to them? That's a good question. What do you think? That, isn't that why we need a community to wrestle together uh, instead of just one person in isolation deciding what is true? <laughs> Uh, it's true that too many cooks spoil the broth, but a multitude of counselors there is strength, and that's, the latter is biblical, the former is not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and I, I think that I think it's important there are several ingredients that ha- maybe have to precede our study and one is honesty and, and that that's a very hard quality to come by because we all have blind spots we all, we all have a tendency to not see things fully in ourselves and, and in what we read and we all bring uh, the way we've been raised and, and the way we've been brought to understand to the table but honesty humility the willingness to listen and the willingness to let other people say no I don't agree with you and, and to dialogue uh, it seems to me that those two ingredients are very important to pursuing this all who handle the word of God are engaged in the most solemn and sacred work for in their research they are to receive light and a correct knowledge that they might give to those who are ignorant education is the inculcation of ideas which are the light and truth everyone who diligently and patiently searches the scriptures that he may educate others entering upon the work correctly and with an honest heart laying aside his preconceived ideas whatever they may have been and his hereditary prejudices at the door of investigation will gain true knowledge but it is easy to put a false interpretation on scripture placing stress on passages and assigning them with a meaning which at the first investigation may appear true but with um, which by further search will be seen to be false if the seeker after truth will compare scripture with scripture he will find the key that unlocks the treasure house and gives him a true understanding of the word of God then he will see that his first impressions will not bear investigation and that continuing to believe them would be mixing falsehood with truth. Okay, I want you to notice a very important uh, aspect of this is finding the key. And the question is, how do we determine what the key is? And that's going to be proved to be very, very important in attempting to understand all and why attempting to understand the Bible. For example, we talk about God's wrath. Is Romans 1 a key passage by which we can interpret all the other passages that have to do with God's wrath? I have used it that way and, and one of the reasons I use it that way is because it says now the wrath of God is revealed and that word revealed in the Greek really is definitive. It means now you're going to see what God's wrath really is. And, and what follows is that three times in that passage what God's action is giving people up. Giving people up. Three times it states that. And there's an antecedent to that. And I, I used, I, when I did my master's thesis on Romans, and I, that passage was one of the passages I worked with, I kept wondering where Paul got this particular use of paradidomy, which is the word to give up, to let go. It seems peculiar to Paul, the way he used it. And his using it three times meant that it was highly significant to him in that passage and highly definitive and it wasn't until I did my master's thesis went on into higher graduate work with my doctorate that one day I was studying the Septuagint version of Isaiah 53 
Paul used the Septuagint and in the Septuagint of Isaiah 53 three times it says that Jesus was given up and using the same word that's where Paul got it was Isaiah 53 so that's, that's how I've gone about defining that this is a key passage which unlocks the meaning of all the uses of scripture for God's wrath but to me this is very important so keep it in mind as we move along any questions or comments scripture is the key that unlocks scripture the suppositions of men are worthless great care is to be exercised lest human fallacies be brought in every student is to be educated to give a clear exposition of the word according to the example Christ has given in his teaching he said nothing to gratify curiosity or to stimulate selfish ambition he did not deal in abstract theories but in what is but that which is essential to the development of character that which will enlarge man's capacity for knowing God and increase his power to do good he spoke of those truths to relate to the conduct of life and that unite man with eternity we read that the common people heard him gladly the people were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power we need not tax our minds for our far-fetched explanation of the words of scripture thus the Jewish teachers did they quoted the ideas and traditions of the rabbis confusing their minds with, the hear with their hearers they taught for doctrine the commandments of men we are not to seek for revelations that have not been made in the word of God in the simplicity of Christ we are to present the plain teaching of the Bible men in high positions of trust in the world will be charmed by a plain straightforward scriptural statement of truth I'd like to give you an example of what I think is in included here this is not the only example you could bring to it she talks about how, they, how the Jewish teachers quoted the ideas and traditions of the rabbis confusing the minds of the hearers and she goes on to say we are not to seek for revelations that have not been made in the word of God I've heard people say that of course God gets angry because we get angry and we're made in his image and my response to that would be and where is that in the Bible and I think that's, that's the kind of thing that she's talking about here is using our human, uh, our human sinful tendencies and planting them on God and, and kind of remaking God in our image which I think is definitely a tendency I, I, I hear it said so many times that, that God is way above us okay? his thoughts are not our thoughts and therefore he will exact justice we tend to be lenient with sin is the idea and God will extract justice and I'm saying well now wait a minute when, God, when the Bible says that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts he's in his mercy he's talking about his forgiveness not his wrath and how many times do we suffer injustice and get angry our tendency is not to forgive but to hold grudges so I, that's the kind of thing I think this passage applies to is that any questions or comments okay um, yes well, just one thing that kind of stands out to me is that 
the truth in this sense is not complicated. It can be complex, mm-hmm. but people can understand it. And again, that's drawing upon the fact that we should be able to understand God's truth. And I, I have to interject this. Uh, this morning we sang the closing hymn, I Would Be Like Jesus. And there is one line that says, Teach me not to reason why. And when I come to that line, every time, because this whole, this whole hymn, this whole hymn is, is a problem for me. <laughs> it, it feels very dismal. I want to rewrite the words all the time. But when I came to those words, I cannot sing, teach me not to reason why. To me, that is an absolute lie. It goes against everything that I believe in. And so I, I rephrased it, teach me how to reason why. <laughs> Okay. Um. Jesus spake as never man spake. He poured out to men the whole treasure of heaven in wisdom and knowledge. He had not come to utter uncertain sentiments and opinions, but to speak truth established on eternal principles. He could have made disclosures in the sciences that would have placed the discoveries of the greatest men in the background as utter littleness, but this was not his mission or his work. He had come to seek and to save the lost. He would not permit himself to be turned from his object. He revealed truths that had been buried under the rubbish of error, and he freed them from the exactions and traditions of men, and bade them to fast forever. He rescued truth from its obscurity and set it in its proper framework, and it might shine with its original luster. What wonder that crowds followed in the footsteps of the Lord and gave him homage as they listened to his words. I want you to notice this. He took truths that have been buried under the rubbish of error and freed them from the exactions and traditions of men and set them in the framework of truth. Is the framework of truth the things we have invented? Or is it really the framework of truth? And, and I'd, li- I'd like to suggest that I, I have a beautiful illustration for this. My grandmother did watercolor painting. And she painted a whole bunch of paintings of um, daffodils. And she gave them to different members of the family. She gave my father one. And my mother hated it. My father has always thought that the best frame for a light picture, and daffodils are yellow and green, you know, it was light, uh, the best frame would be a black frame. <laughs> and so he, he put it in a black frame, and my mother buried it in the cedar chest. She couldn't stand it. She wouldn't put it up on the wall. And one day they were sitting in my cousin's living room, and my mother noticed this painting. She said, that has to be one that Mother Sheldon did. And she kept studying it, and she said, I really like it. It looks familiar. Well, yeah, we have one like it. It's a daffodil painting, but now this one looks beautiful, and that one doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so she thought, looked at it, and she looked at it, and finally she realized, it's the frame. The frame is what made the picture. So she went to my dad, and she said, <clears throat> pulled that picture out of the cedar chest. She said, you go get a blonde frame. It's now hanging in my one of my rooms in my house. Uh, it never went back to the cedar chest. 
So that gives you an idea that we can darken the picture of God that we get in the Bible by putting around it a framework that we have invented that really represents the whole paradigm of force that is in Satan's kingdom. The legal paradigm. Christ presented to men that which was entirely contrary to the representations of the enemy in regard to the character of God and sought to impress upon men the love of the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He urged upon men the necessity of prayer, repentance, confession, and abandonment of sin. He taught taught them honesty, forbearance, mercy, and compassion, enjoining upon them to love not only those who loved them, but those who hated them and treated them despitefully. In all this, he was revealing to them the character of the Father, who is long-suffering, merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and full of goodness and truth. Okay, any questions or comments? I think she's setting here the framework that our perceptions of God are clouded by all the opposite of all these things. You know, we, we tend to be, become arrogant. We think we're right. We want to prove that we're right. And uh, we, in the process, walk on people uh, and we mistreat them. And that becomes our framework for how we read about the character of God. And here she's giving the framework of compassion and mercy, honesty and forbearance, uh, that she intends that framework to be the framework of truth. The Savior had not come to set aside what patriarchs and prophets had spoken, for he himself had spoken through these representative men. All the truth of God had come from him. But these priceless gems had not had been placed in false settings. Their precious light had been made to minister to error. God desired them to be removed from their settings of error and replaced in the framework of truth. This work only a divine hand could accomplish. By its connection with error, the truth had been uh, serving the cause of the enemy of God and man. Christ had come in a place where it would glorify God and work the salvation of humanity. Okay. Any questions or comments? I think that's pretty self-explanatory. The Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he has took humanity, the Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. There is not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. And I'd like to pause there and emphasize that practical purposes. I find more and more when I try to solve the problems in the Old Testament, for example, that taking a practical stance on the text nets a much better picture of God. Uh, and I'm, I'm unfortunately not able to think of an example to give you right now, so it's, right now it's kind of abstract, but uh, hopefully I'll think of one. The stamps of minds are different. All do not understand expressions and statements alike. Some understand the statements of the scriptures to suit their own particular minds and cases. 
Prepossessions, prejudices, and passions have a strong influence to darken the understanding and confuse the mind even in reading the words of, the, of Holy Writ. And I'd like to add to that the tone of voice we hear, which I think is all part of this. We hear a tone of voice, we see facial expressions in our, our mind's eye, and those color our perceptions. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard Alexander Scorby read the Bible. It used to be there was only one audio bi- version of the Bible you could find. And this was many years ago. And that was Alexander Scorby's reading of the King James Version. And he read it about like this. <laughs> and by the time you get through hearing the text, God was angry, he was he was impersonal, he was uh, revengeful, and, and etc. Uh, I'm so glad there's now different audio versions of the Bible. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God, as a writer, is not represented. Men will often say that such an expression is not like God, But God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Look at the different writers. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who, under the influence of the Holy Ghost, is imbued with thoughts. But the words received the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus the utterances of the man are the word of God. What comes to me as, as I read this is something I do kind of unconsciously because of reading these statements. And that is that when I see a word like wrath or a word like justice, I try to avoid immediately bringing the ordinary meaning to that word. But I suspend it and try to let the Bible tell me what, how that word should be defined. I also, I also consult the original languages on that. But the original language, is, the, the language of Hebrew is not a perfect language. Mm-hmm. It's very human. Uh, and so I, I still have to ultimately at the end of the day try to seek out what is the biblical definition of this word rather than to immediately bring my own baggage or the baggage that I've been taught or the baggage that society holds for that word. Uh, we're going to skip the next one. We're on number 10 now. Through the inspiration of his spirit, the Lord gave his apostles truth to be expressed according to the development of their minds by the Holy Spirit. But the mind is not cramped as if forced to into a certain mold. So again, you have the human element is what she's saying, I think. Christ had many truths to give to his disciples, of which he could not speak because they did not advance with the light that was flashed upon Levitical laws and the sacrificial offerings. They did not accept the light, advance with the light, or follow on the still greater brightness as providence should lead the way. And for the same reason, Christ's disciples of 1898 do not comprehend important matters of truth, 
so dull has the comprehension even of those who teach the truth to others, that many things cannot be open to them until they reach heaven. This ought not to be. But as men's minds become narrow, they think they know all, when they have only a glimpse of truth. They close their minds, as if there were no more for them to learn. And should the Lord attempt to lead them on, they would not accept the increased light. They cling to the spot where they see light. When they see that which they see is only a glimmer of the brighter beams they might enjoy. They know very little of what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ. To me, that's, that's a very telling statement that the more narrow we are, the more narrow our perceptions of truth, the more certain we are that we are right. So I think what this does, it, it, it says to me, these statements say, say to me that I should be humble enough to realize I don't know it all. And, and there's always more. And the path of the righteous grows brighter with each increasing day if, if we move forward. Uh, for that reason, I don't feel called upon to stay where the reformers stood. And, and say that they had all there is to know about the atonement. And that's where I plan, want to stay. I just have a question for you. So, a lot of men on their deathbed have said, if I could go back, I'd do it differently this way. Um, because they've now experienced life a little more, and their narrow mind has kind of opened up a little bit. And it's always like young people whose minds are extremely narrow who think they have life completely figured out. So my question is how, as younger people in a college setting, how do you, how do you begin to get that little glimpse of truth, I guess, to understand that it's much larger than you? Well, I think that's one of the purposes of college education, isn't it? Um, the more education you have, hopefully, the, less you, the more you realize you don't know at all. And, and let me tell you, it doesn't change with graduate school. <laughs> when I finished my doctorate, I decided that what I had really learned is how little I knew. <laughs> and that I still had a lot of learning to do, and I still do. <laughs> uh, it just keeps moving. So I, I, think, I think that's why it's so important that if, if only the church would allow the spirit of freedom and you know where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Second Corinthians 3:17. Uh, if the church would allow the spirit of freedom to move, and the spirit of humility, where we could sit down calmly <laughs> and dispassionately and discuss and dialogue and study the truth together, that's how the early pioneers did it. They they had vigorous discussion and they had vigorous disagreement but they were all committed to one thing let's find the truth and let's let the Bible tell us what it is and they were willing to put themselves aside to do that and that that spirit has long fled the church I hate to say um, so uh, last week her grandpa was showing me a quote Ellen White she had written about truth and it's basically truth is always simple it's always easily accessible and it always is short and to the point and as you were just saying that how in a church setting that's supposed to just be uh, focusing on just the simple truths but today is preoccupied on 
more like marketing aspect of how do we get our message to the world in every format available. When that takes up most of the time, how do you get back to that, I guess? We need a shaking. Um, yeah. What do the rest of you think on that? How do we get back to that? Or is it going in the right direction? Or is it go is that the direction? We have the truth. We have this 28 fundamental beliefs. <laughs> we have them all in their complicated, complex form. Uh, yeah. How do we get back to that? I think of Hebrews that there will be a shaking. I will shake the heavens and I will shake the earth that everything that cannot be shaken will remain. That gets it down to pretty simple things, I think. Maybe back to Jesus loves me, this I know, except that I'd like to broaden that. The Father loves me, this I know. Okay. All whom God has blessed with reasoning powers are to become intellectual Christians. They are not requested to believe without evidence. Therefore, Jesus has enjoined upon all to search the scriptures. Let the ingenious inquirer and the one who would know for himself what is truth exert his mental powers to search out the truth as it is in Jesus. Any neglect here is at the peril of the soul. We must know individually the prescribed conditions of entering into eternal life. We must know what is the voice of God, that we may live by every word that proceeds out of his mouth. We cannot allow these questions to be settled for us by another's mind or another's judgment. We must search the scriptures carefully with a heart open to the reception of light in the evidences of truth. We cannot trust the salvation of our souls to ministers, to idle traditions, to human authorities, or to pretensions. We must know for ourselves what God has said. We are laborers together with God, and we want to know and must know what conditions are resting upon those who are to be heirs of salvation, or we shall die in our sins. It is not to be our study as to what, as to what may be the opinion of men, or of popular faith, or what the fathers have said. We cannot trust to the voice of the multitude, but we, want to, but we want to know what is the voice of God and what his revealed will. He has left us his own statements, and we must search for the truth as for hidden treasures. We must put away all skepticism, all exaltation of our own ideas. We must humble our hearts by repentance and with contrition of soul, praying for true enlightenment. We must be diligent and thoughtful. We must be constant learners in the school of Christ. Then we shall be meek and lowly of heart, as was our Savior. The Lord positively demands of every Christian an, in an intelligent knowledge of the scriptures. He must dig for the truth as he would dig for hidden treasures. He must search the scriptures, comparing scripture with scripture, for he must be a laborer together with God. Individually, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who works in us and by us and through us. God's word is the sword of the spirit, and with a knowledge of revealed truth, which is our spiritual weapon, we must go to work, laboring to pull down the strongholds of the enemy. The truth must be spoken in love. We must show that we are Christ's followers. 
and that we have learned of Jesus. We must approach the people in the spirit of kindness and affection. That's a pretty comprehensive statement, isn't it? All are required to be intellectual Christians. Who've been blessed with reasoning powers? Who've been? We're off the hook if we haven't been blessed with reasoning powers, huh? <laughs> it says you are required to work out your own salvation. So you're not. It's not up to other people. It comes down eventually to what you decide what side you're going to be on. In other words, don't let the church do our thinking for us. Don't let a pastor do thinking for us. Don't let Gene Sheldon do your thinking for you. <laughs> okay. You know, our time is pretty much gone. Um, we have some very important ones to still cover, but I think probably we need to quit here, so bring this back next week. We will finish this, and then we'll begin working on uh, these statements and uh, see where we come. Let's, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we ask that you will continually lead us to clearer and clearer perceptions of who you are. We ask that for the humility, for the honesty, for the perseverance, for the depth and penetration of thought, for the breadth of perception. We ask that we not be narrow, but that we be vigorous and insightful and clear thinking. Thank you for giving us the gift of reason and the gift of thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. How much have you read? Uh, John Brennan's a theologian. Oh, really? Uh, and he is the author of one of the books that I'm reading from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I'm reading from uh, And there was a statement that I wanted uh, to interject, but it would take a lot of explanation. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, well, bring it next time. You have a, you have somewhat grounding in Skinner, but essentially, you know that Skinner was really determinist, mm-hmm. uh, such to the point that in his science, he denies even the validity of thought. Thought, uh, mental activities are illegitimate. Uh, illegitimate. <laughs> I didn't know he went that far. Oh yeah. Well, and, he, and essentially, like. He says psychology can't be a legitimate science if it appeals to unobservable thoughts, if if it appeals to unobservable things, and eventually he goes as far to say that they don't exist. Didn't he change his mind after he went that far, or not? Not in the books that I've read. Oh, really? (laughs) Okay. But one of the things that really stood out to me from Don Browning is he's giving a commentary on this, and he's saying that, you know, he believes that Skinner probably does believe uh, somewhat in thoughts. Oh. We have thoughts. We experience. Oh, he certainly expressed his thoughts. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but he has to deny them if he's going to keep his science complete. Because his science can only focus on observable things. And if he admits that there are unobservable things that exist, then his science is not complete. That's and true. therefore he has to end up denying these things in order to make his science more credible. And when we were talking about humility in terms of uh, in hermeneutics, <laughs> that totally brought that issue up to me. It was, it was just like that, that happens in science too. 
It happens. It happens every every field. Every. Yeah. But that's going to be one of the things that that I'm addressing in my honors project is that psychology has a great deal to gain from a deterministic view of human behavior. Because uh, essentially, a denial of determinism for human behavior denies psychology its status as science. And so, uh -huh. yeah. Now, the fun thing is that there's the conversation that does determinism rule out free will? Uh, my project isn't determining whether we have free will or not, <laughs> but it's definitely taking into consideration these issues uh, because, uh, as Don Browning also knows, especially when it comes to the human sciences, science does not merely report what it sees. It fits it into a framework. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and so one of Don Browning's like, theses, you know, theses um, in his book is that a lot of the modern psychologies, uh, yes, they are sciences, but they are also philosophies as well that definitely have values. Uh, and to believe that it's just a science that is uh, dispassionate or completely objective is fooling itself. So that's one of the things I'm going to my favorite. I can't wait to hear your project. I thought that that really kind of missed that aspect of humility. It does. Like yes. When it comes to the point of like, oh man, I really need to be able to be legitimate here. Mm -hmm. Or I need to be able to explain everything. Mm -hmm. yeah.